Something's not working. Wow. Came in like a lion, went out like a lamb. That was pathetic. We can kill it, Aaron. Thank you. Yeah. With that as our introduction, wow. <laughs> that was supposed to be the memorable hook so that you could not forget this series. And, and uh, before we get into that, let me pray again for just a second. Father, first with everyone else, just thanks so much for your uh, gift of this building and property. And we really do want to, to uh, humbly say thanks for answering years worth of prayers. Thanks, Lord, that better than this, we have a future and a hope in your presence face to face. And Lord, here and now, our tendency is to make much of ourselves and to see you as somehow little in ways that you're not. Would you use the truth of your word? Lord, would, your, would you honor yourself by your spirit helping us raise our eyes to see you more clearly, to draw our affections and our emotions to you more fully? Help us to see you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, before I actually get into the message proper, let me just remind you a couple things on the building itself, some of which Bart said, but if you want to use the nursery for little ones, hi Jess, you can do that downstairs. You need to go down the stairs, down the hall, and the nursery's directly underneath us here. If you want to keep hold of your little one, there's a, there's a functional cry room right there behind the glass, and there's another room off that, so if you have tiny ones, anybody, uh, park near the end of the pews. This is not as easy getting in and out of these as it is the, the wide seating we usually have at CPLS or Ramada. But you're welcome to use that back as well. And related to what Bart said about when we go back to CPLS, uh, there's a chance that we will not be there before September 14th. And again, we'll keep you posted on this. Uh, but that is to say Sunday school would normally restart. Mike was talking about the career Sunday school. That's planned to restart September 7th. Um, if we're here September 7th, Sunday school will not restart. We simply don't have the space or the number of rooms necessary for that to happen here. So we'll keep you posted on that, but Sunday school will restart when we're able to get back to CPLS, and that's dependent on the gym floor there. Okay, so back to the pathetic introduction to today's message. This is the last of a very short four-week series called I Love Sophie. And it was obviously trying to trade on the I Love Lucy theme song and image uh, as a hook so that we'd remember that. But Sophia was the Greek term for wisdom. And so it was really about developing God's heart and having a heart and a mind for God's kind of wisdom, to embrace wisdom. And let me just start by a very short rehearsal of where we've already been, especially if this is your first week here. When we looked at this in week one, we said God personified Himself in the visage of this very gracious woman in the book of Proverbs. He typically called their Lady Wisdom, and we've called her Sophie or Sophia. But she's a personification of God Himself and God's wisdom. And so we saw, especially in the book of Proverbs, that wisdom was like this gracious woman who goes throughout the cities, the lanes, the alleys, the gateways, any place where people are, and she would invite people to her home to feast at her table, and by doing so, by hanging out with her, they were going to gain life. That's what she has to give. That's what God has to give, life in His presence. We also saw, though, on week two, 
that wisdom had a very, very different side. And so does God. And in week two, we saw in Proverbs 1, as that chapter closed out, that wisdom would say to those who had spurned her offer, when their calamity came upon them, she would say, you're going to enjoy the fruits of your decisions. We said that the decisions we make, make us over time. And in some things, guys, you know this, you can change your mind, go back, make another decision and start over, but there's other things in which you simply can't. Some decisions made in the moment make us. And there's no going back. And so Lady Wisdom there in week two was about be careful how you choose. You know, in those times of opportunity, those windows of opportunity, when God's calling you and telling you this is the way, walk in it, do it. Because times and periods in our life come and then they go. And some things are set. Now, as long as we have breath related to salvation and enjoying eternity with Jesus, there's hope, right? You know, Spurgeon said there's one thief on the cross that believes at the end of his life. There's one so we have hope, but there's only one so we don't presume. But related to all other kinds of things in life, we want to be careful to accept Lady Wisdom's offer in the moment because those decisions we make are going to end up making us. Last week, we shifted gears. We went away from wisdom broadly and we looked at one sphere or arena of life that has huge implications for all of us at some point in some way and that was the arena of love sex and marriage and we said related to that that's meant to be in God's design a happy trinity a happy holy trinity love and sex within marriage is this great gift of God and that our uh, tendency to try and pull love from sex or sex from marriage or to dissect those in any way always ends up in bringing some form of death into our experience. And also that no matter how great a gift love, sex, and marriage were, they were never meant and they're never able to fill up the human heart ultimately. And so we said, if I'm in a marriage enjoying that, great, but if I'm single and if I stay single all my life, I'm not somehow relegated to some ether world where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth because ultimately love, sex, and marriage is supposed to be fulfilled face-to-face fellowship with Christ. So we said love, sex, and marriage are like an appetizer to whet our whistle for something greater and eternal. Now this morning, I'm going to ask you to work a little harder at focusing. You know, if you're in church and someone starts talking about sex, they have your attention right now. We're not talking about sex this morning. So, you're going to have to work a little harder this week. But this is another... uh, What we're talking about this morning is profoundly important to all of us in these various ideas we have or the various arenas of life in which our concept affects what our experience will be. And really, we want to confront the false ideas we have in our mind so that we can see God as we should, so that we can make much of Him in our life, so that we can enjoy the fruits of wisdom So that we have his mind on these things. If we don't, we're setting ourselves up for trouble. So this morning we're talking about work and leisure, futility and joy. Kind of two sides of two different coins. Work and leisure, futility and joy. Uh, These sound mundane, I confess on the front end. I hope you don't feel that way when we're done. But our view on work and leisure and futility and joy have a lot to do with what our experience is of life and what our expectation is related to God and especially the future. David Platt is a 
Baptist pastor from Birmingham, Alabama. He authored a book, best-selling book in 2010 called Radical, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. We taught on that in January 16, 2011. You can listen to that later if you care to, but Platt was addressing something that he was concerned about, and it was this. He said he thought that the American dream had really sort of been rendered down to a cultural desire for what we might consider the good life, the easy life, in which life really is all about us and our comforts and what we want and our desires, and we're sort of the sum and the center of all things. And if we believe in God or if we say we follow God, we're really just asking God to bless our plans. So really, we're the center of the universe and we're making much of ourselves. And Platt's call was to go back and say, no, God's program is to make much of Himself and to call us into what He's doing. Uh, I was blessed this last week in our Bible survey class. We're reading through Ezekiel. I think Tom was mentioning that in Ezekiel, God says again and again, He's not acting on Israel's behalf because of their faithfulness. He said He was acting in His own name's benefit. So to His own character, He was going to act on their behalf. And that's what we want to remind ourselves about. We're ultimately wanting to embrace God and make much of Him and have His wisdom on things. It saves us from all kinds, all sorts of troubles. So Platt's thesis was, let's chuck the version of the American dream that really isn't God's plan for our life or for Christians generally. Let's get rid of that. Let's put God back at the center of our plans and our lives and let's restart and go from there. You know, the lotteries in the United States, this is one example, lots of people play the lottery, right? And winning the lottery becomes uh, the dream, right? The, the ultimate good for many people. And you say, well, why is that? You know, very few people are going to win and those who do almost always go bankrupt because they don't know what to do with that money. But even knowing that, why is winning the lottery, why is that a big deal for so many people? And, and it goes to thinking something like this. If you give me all the money I could spend, then I can do whatever I want. And I won't have to work or sweat or labor and, and I can have the good life. Because all of life will be my desires and I'll have the money and the ability to do whatever I want. And, and that's the kind of thing Platt was speaking to. And frankly, that's the kind of uh, thoughts you and I often entertain. God, would you simply bless me, give me the good stuff, make much of me in my life, and life will be good. Lord, you and I will be on the same page. And so that's what we're addressing. Who's at the center of the universe? And what should our expectations be of God in this life here and now, and then also going forward as well? And so it's against that backdrop that we want to talk about work and leisure and futility and joy, because ultimately if we have God's wisdom on these arenas of life, we will save ourselves from all kinds of frustration unnecessarily. You know, we're going to suffer in this life, and as we'll talk about in a minute, futility is going to come your way and mine. It's part and parcel of life on this earth. That's just the way it is. But we can avoid unnecessary pain, unnecessary futility, if we have God's wisdom in mind. So, if our expectations are misplaced, we've unwisely set ourselves up for unnecessary disappointment and frustration, and we'll be working at cross purposes to God's design for our life. So we want to get God's view, God's wisdom on these key arenas of life. Related to the first work, and by the way, I hope you have a study sheet. 
Got a bulletin on the way in and a study sheet. There's a lot of verses on there that we simply will not cover this morning for time's sake. So you can look those up later. Uh, Many of us treat work and labor as a curse to be avoided. And that's sort of the lottery mentality. God, save me from work. Give me pleasure. Give me the money without the work so I can go do what I want. And it's, it's a way of looking at work as somehow I'm, I'm cursed to doing something I really wasn't made for or otherwise wouldn't want to. And yet, of course, if you've read your Bible, you know that when work was given to our first parents, it was before the fall and the curse. So when God said in the creation accounts to Adam and Eve to subdue the earth and rule over the earth, that was labor, And that was work. And whatever that looks like in your mind, this was work in a blessed fashion. This was not a curse. This is what Adam and Eve were made for. And this is what you and I are made for today as well. So subdue and rule have the thought that man, man and woman, mankind on the earth, were going to be God's representatives and we were going to be recreating the earth through our efforts in ways that honored God and blessed us. And so really those terms have to do with things like farming, and mining, and horticulture, and agronomy, and building trades, and all the other things that we've developed today, that has to do with that original command, which was not a curse, but was meant as a blessing, that God has called us to labor and to work. That's part of His goodwill for us. There's a downside of that, of course, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. Related to work, Proverbs has a lot to say. It's a great book on work in general and all kinds of facets of life. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Proverbs 6 for just a minute, starting at verse 6. You've got to love this passage on work. Uh, God says, you know, if you'll bend down real low, if you'll humble yourself, put your face down there near near the ground, uh, you'll be able to see someone, something that can speak a lot to you about this whole arena of work. So God says there, go to the ant, O sluggard. Sluggard's not a term we use much today. It means a lazy sloth person it means a person who's dedicated to not working go to the ant O sluggard consider her ways and be wise Andrew did you know that we can learn a lot from an ant that's cool I love that Uh, without having any chief officer or ruler she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest so God says to you and me you know if you'll just get down low enough to watch a little colony of ants you'll learn a lot about my wisdom regarding work and what is it about ants that's the deal you know these guys are always working aren't they i mean if you disturb an anthill man they just come out and they're putting everything right as fast as they can aren't they or you'll see them scurrying around here and there all the time looking for food and they're bringing that back to the colony and they're laying it up for the winter and god says this is a profound bit of his wisdom for you and i on work which is simply get with it get in it Work, that's the thing. Just start. You know, don't just sit there, do something. If you make a mistake, that's okay. You know something for the next time. But it's simply the ant is working and it's working all the time in in an important and an appropriate way. So God says we'll learn wisdom from the ant just about we should be working. Labor's part of life. It's not a downside. It's not a curse. It's important. Now he contrasts that at verse 9 and says this. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? Did anybody hit the snooze this morning on their alarm? Once or twice? You know, this is okay on Sunday morning or Saturday. If you don't have to get up for work, you know, 
sleep in, hit the snooze, whatever. This is talking about making a, a norm in your life of I oversleep. I'm not working when I should be working. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. You see, God's saying to the person that tends to not work, to be lazy, we, we trick ourselves in our thinking. I just, I'll delay that for a little bit now. And then later we delay it a little bit more. And then later we delay it a little bit more. Well, he says, well, that's how poverty comes on us. It's not a singular one-time decision. It's those little decisions over time when I'm simply not attending to the things I should be doing. Poverty and destruction are the fruit of that over time. So God says, be wise, look at that little lowly ant, and get with the business of working. That's His call to you and to me. Proverbs 14.23 says, In all toil there is profit, mere talk tends only to poverty. Again, if I'm simply out in the field, if I'm at the, my place of employment, or if I'm on the job, I'm going to do something constructive. But if all I do is talk about work, nothing happens. Have you guys ever gone to a prayer meeting where you talk about praying and then go home and you didn't pray? That's what this is like. I talk about all my plans. I talk about my work plans and how I'll do this and how I'll do that, but I never get around to doing it. Well, a little bit of work, God says, is better than all the talking. This doesn't say don't plan, but get with it. Talking, planning should lead to the action itself. The last one, Proverbs 18.9. This is like Proverbs 6. And this struck me as profound in my own life in the past. Whoever is slack in his work is the brother to him who destroys. If, if we're engaged in some kind of labor or work, we should be giving our best the person who is slack in their work, they're not doing something with a whole heart. It's slipshod work. It's a second-rate mentality and you get second-rate results. And God says it ends up having the effect of destruction. Half-hearted results, half-hearted work gets half-hearted results. So don't do it, but work and work diligently. Think about that ant. Work with integrity also. Uh, working is good. That's the place to start. But God calls us to work with integrity. You've got Proverbs 11.11 11 there on your sheet. Uh, false balance is an abomination to the Lord. A just weight is His delight. When you and I are working, are we being honest and doing so with integrity? So for instance, if you're on the time clock, do you punch in when you're actually getting to work and punch out when you're actually leaving work? Uh, if you're an employee, uh, an employer and you're paying your employees, are you doing so appropriately? Are you giving them what their due is? This is brought up, by the way, in a kind of New Testament wisdom literature in the book of James. Are you, as an employee, are you cheating those who are working for you? God says these kinds of things are an abomination to Him. That's pretty strong language. We're cheating. We're, we're doing second rate here again. We're not being honest and forthright in what we're doing. In whatever venue you labor, God says bring integrity, bring honesty to that. Also, if you look at Proverbs 12.11, work with wisdom. It says there, uh, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. You know, if I have enough sense to plant some seeds in the ground, there will be a crop. 
But in contrast to that, I may be looking for the next big deal. I may be looking for that next uh, lottery or that next pyramid thing that's going to make me wealthy overnight with no effort on my part. Well, God says, you know, no, in contrast to that, if I just get in and do the little easy thing that doesn't look fancy, there'll be a crop. But if I'm always looking for that pie in the sky, it's going to end up empty. So working with working, working with integrity and working wisely as well. Um, You know, related to the creation account, uh, Genesis says that God rested on the seventh day, and that's because creation was over. Uh, His creative acts were over on day six. But you know, in all kinds of ways, God still is working today. So Jesus says in John's Gospel, you know, my Father's at work till now, and so I'm working too. You know, there will come a day when I can't work, when you can't work, but that's not today. Today, Jesus is sustaining the universe. He's holding the universe together today. The Holy Spirit, like in Genesis 1, is still hovering over the earth today, working in the hearts and the lives of men and women. And you and I, when we engage in the labors God gives us, we're working with God. We're part of His plans on the earth. We are meant to make much of Him in our labors. We're joining Him in the things He's doing, the fruitful, productive acts on the earth. If you're in school, and we have a lot of students in this church, if you're in school, studies are usually your work. And so you want to bring your very best efforts to your studies. You don't want to go at those half-heartedly because really that work is what you're offering to God. Your studies, that's what you're bringing to God. So you want to bring your best to your studies. If you're a homemaker, and we have a lot of homemakers in here too, you're not just a homemaker. You know, what you do is really supremely important isn't it especially you're raising kids at home you're shaping the future not only of each life in your own family but you're shaping the impact of the lives of others that your children will impact and you're creating the home in which children or husbands come home and what's that what's that sphere look like is that a welcome place and and is that a home place that you can invite friends or neighbors into there you're not just a homemaker, that work, that labor is important, supremely important. And so God calls you to make much of Him in that work as well. If you're in the workforce as an owner or an employee, God calls us to exercise faithfulness to Him in that arena. And guys, really, if you think about it, if you're a Christian, you believe that your life belongs to Christ. So what area of work can you, can you do sort of half-hearted and say that's okay or that's appropriate? It wouldn't matter what we're doing. We should be offering God our best. Also last, if you're retired, you may not need to work for a paycheck, but you know, you'll look in vain for retirement in the Bible, right? Uh, God, God means for us to be productive. And if I don't have to labor for a paycheck, that's fine. But I can still work. There's still meaningful service I can be involved in in the lives of others. So whether as a volunteer or with family or friends, hopefully we're doing something in our retirement as well to be productive as well. Um, worship in work was a teaching that's at the Lion and Lamb website from February 17, 2013. Uh, I had more response to that teaching than almost any I've ever done. And I know it touched a nerve on, on the uh, importance that we should see that God puts on our work, that it's a key way in our lives in which we offer Him 
worship and make much of Him. In contrast to that, you know, some people have difficulty uh, cultivating a mindset in which work is a good thing, a positive thing, something to give ourselves to fully. But other people have a difficult time having an appropriate God-honoring view of leisure or rest. Uh, Some of us would say we're workaholics or our spouse or friends would say they're a workaholic or they're a type A personality. And you know, my take on this at some level is this. we may at times have to work really hard, really long because we're paying off debt. You know, we've, we've got some emergency in our family or there's some short-term goal that we've got to reach and so we're burning the wick at both ends, right? The candle at both ends. That should be the exception in life. And I'm not talking about that. Short-term periods in which for some reason there's just a lot of work to accomplish. But if you find that as a mindset you're the workaholic that doesn't intentionally take time away from work, to be refreshed in God's presence and worship with other believers and to have this recreative element in your own life, then my suspicion is you got a pride issue. Because almost all of us who would call ourselves workaholics, it's about us. It's not about God. And it's not that we've got God's perspective on work and leisure. We're making much of ourselves. We're so important. Did you know I'm so important? I I can't take time to rest because the universe will fall apart if I don't keep pushing uphill. It's pride behind this for almost all of us. That's what's behind it. God means for us to have His view of leisure as well as work. We looked at a couple passages last week from Psalms 127 and 128 because they talked about the blessings of God in marriage, in the marriage life, in love and sex in marriage. But I want to look at them very briefly today because they speak of leisure as well. So Psalm 127 verse 2, Solomon wrote, He said, it's vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil because God gives to His beloved sleep. You know, we want to work. We want to work hard and diligently and wisely. Absolutely. But Solomon says, when we're working out of this anxiety and fearfulness, we're missing the mark. Because Solomon says, at the end of the day, God is the one who means and who will give us rest. Rest so that we can honor Him in our work, but not because we're anxious and fearful. So Solomon, that wisest of man, that guy who possessed wisdom uniquely, says, no, if you find that you're toiling away with no periods of intentional rest, you're filled with fear and anxiety, Solomon says you need to realize God gives rest. God gives nothing but good gifts. He intends us to have rest. Psalm 128 verse 3 says, Your wife is like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive shoots around your table. This is a picture of leisure. When God was describing what a blessed life under His hand looked like, He's describing a family at rest around the supper table. There's leisure. They're interacting with each other. There's joy and there's blessing there. They're intentional about leisure. Last of the Scriptures on this one is Psalm 92.11. The superscription over this psalm says, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. Specifically written for the Jewish Sabbath day. It is good to give thanks to the Lord to sing praises to Your name, O Most High. 
You remember that the Jews were required by the law to set aside especially the seventh day. God said, I created heaven and earth in six days. I stopped. I rested on the seventh. And so he commanded in the law and the covenant, you take every seventh day off the Sabbath. And you do no meaningful toil or labor. It's not a day to work. It's a day to rest. And as Psalm 92 says, it's a time to gather together. This is what the Jews did with God's people in the synagogues or in the temple or at the tabernacle. And to declare God's praises. And this was seen as one of the restorative mechanisms God had built into their life and their calendar. It was putting the tools away this one day of the week. And they were getting together with other believing Jews in God's presence. And they were thanking God and they were going away restored and rested and ready for the work week. And this is the thing about the Jewish calendar. One day in seven, no work. And you know, if you're the driven type personality, this meant that you have to say, whatever I got done in those six days was enough. And I'll trust God for what I could have gotten done today. I'll trust God for what I didn't do on this day of rest. I'll trust God for that instead. This comes up later, by the way, in Jewish history. God indicts the nation. This is one of the reasons God says they go to captivity because they didn't trust God for Sabbaths and for Sabbath land rests. The Sabbath was a big deal because it reflected they trusted God, they depended on Him, they made much of Him, or they didn't. You also had in the Jewish calendar feasts through every year at which every man in Israel was commanded by God to attend the three spring feasts and hopefully you'd attend the fall feasts as well. But if you think about this calendar, this looks like a vacation to me. So you've got to leave the farm. I've got to go down to Jerusalem, let's say. And what am I doing? Well, I'm at the temple. And I'm making sacrifices. And those fellowship offerings were taken back and we're eating those as a family. See, we've left the work behind. We're with God. We're worshiping God. We're enjoying each other's company. This was meant to be both worshipful and restorative. So the Jewish calendar anticipated that we would need weekly and regular times where we've put the work aside and we're gathering with other believers to focus on God, to worship Him, to make much of Him. And in doing that, we are restored. And guys, listen, there's nothing more restful than being in God's presence. There's nothing that can build you up and fill you up and re-energize you and recreate you for labors ahead than being in God's presence. You know, if you feel like it's a waste of time to gather with other Christians because I can be productive at home, you've got that absolutely backwards. You know, have you ever done this? I'm anxious about something I've got to get done. I'm fretting about it. I'm worrying about it. And I think, man, you know, maybe I should pray about this. And I can go and pray for 10 minutes and God can give me the solution to that problem in my prayers when I'm doing nothing but just hanging out with my father and tell him I've got a problem. Dad, what do I do with this? And God shows me what to do. That 10 minutes of prayer is worth hours and hours of my labor. And it reminds me God's God. I'm going to my father for my need. And I'm trusting him for outcomes. So the Jews knew that you had to put God and his things first. And that meant simply taking time away from work and being intentional about rest. Along with that, let me ask you this. With your downtime, uh, there's an adage I'm sure you guys have heard, we worship at our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. Uh, 
our calendars tend to be really full, and it's usually a badge of honor if we say we're really, really busy. We're so important, we're really busy. Um, but when you think about your weekends or your vacations, are you intentional about them those days? About um, using them in a way that you actually have time to meet with God and have time to be encouraged and restored? You know, some of us spend our downtime driving everywhere, doing one thing and another. Do you find sometimes that when Monday morning comes, you're more tired than you were Friday night? That's what I'm talking about. So we have to be intentional about honoring God by recognizing that He says we need downtime. And so it's not so much what you're doing uh, or that you're doing something, but are we intentional enough about it that we're recognizing our weakness God's desire to bless us through downtime, through leisure, through rest. And then do we take that into account for our Sundays or our weekends or our vacations? If we find that we're more tired at the end of the weekend than on Friday, something's wrong. We've got to rethink that. Work and leisure are both gifts we need to embrace. Uh, Let me turn to futility. So work and leisure, two sides, sort of the same thing. God wants us to have His mind on both, working and leisure. That's true of futility and joy as well. Uh, You're going to, you know this, but you're going to see futility in all kinds of guises in this life. So futility, I'm frustrated. Things simply will not go the way they should or the way I'd like them to. That's a normal part of life, and it comes in all kinds of ways. Uh, Has your child ever said to you, or have you ever said when you were a child, uh, do I really have to do the dishes again? Because I'll just have to do them again. Or a mom say, I really don't want to make that meal because you'll want me to make a meal tomorrow night too. Or don't take the trash out because I'll just have to do it again and again and again and again. There is a built-in futility or sense of frustration simply in some areas of life simply based on repetition that I simply have to do the same thing over and over and over again. Do you guys remember Sisyphus in the Greek myth? Sisyphus was a a very deceitful, dishonorable king, some say of the city of Corinth way back in the day. And to punish him, the gods gave him this task. They put a big rock in front of him and a big hill. And he had to push the rock up the hill and come back down. And he pushed the rock up the hill. And this was his, this was his uh, decree that forever he would suffer this futility that the work would never be over. He would always have to push that big rock up the hill again. Well, there's elements of life like that for you and I. There's simply the futility of repetition. That some things are simply never done. Solomon addresses that in Ecclesiastes 1. And listen to the way he says it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity means breath, and it, it means I can't get my hands around it. I can't nail it down. I can't make it consequential or substantial. So he says, what does a man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now remember, Solomon's the guy that told us that God's wisdom for us is to work hard. So he doesn't think work's a bad thing, but he says... What do I get at the end of the day for all my toil? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Sun rises and it goes down, it hastens to its place, the wind blows. You see, all this is circular, it just keeps going, right? He says, all the streams run to the sea, the sea's not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. All things are full of weariness. 
the eyes not satisfied with seeing, the ears not feared, uh, filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. There's nothing new under the sun. Solomon says, I did this before and I'll do it again. You did this before, you'll do it again, you'll do it again, you'll do it again. And it's not just true of us, it's one generation after another. There's this futility of, Lord, what difference does it make? Have you guys ever felt that? Lord, what difference does it make if I'm here tomorrow? Or if I take breath or if I do that job or whatever? That's what Solomon's talking about. There's a futility built in simply to the repetition and the sameness of life. Futility, he says. I can't grasp some area of life and say, it's done forever, it's finished, and I move on to something else. That's futility. There's also a futility in labors. That is in our work when we're trying to get something done. There's another kind of futility. Uh, Murphy's Law, you know, that if something can go wrong, it will go wrong, right? And we say Murphy's just a blue-collar version of what we would say is the second law of thermodynamics which is that in this universe, everything over time tends towards randomness. Things fall apart. They break till they get down to their most stable substance. And that just means that you and I can count on this, that things in this life, they go wrong. They're going to go wrong. If it can break, it will break. If it can crack, it will crack. Have you guys ever been really careful about making all sorts of plans? And this thing is going to happen this way, and I'll do one thing, and I'll do another. And you start in and you full of good intention, prayed about it, thought about it, and you start in and, and the f- one thing goes wrong, and then another thing goes wrong, and then another thing goes wrong. That's because this earth is not heaven. And futility is all wrapped up in our work, and it's going to stay that way. And as long as we work on this earth, we should be thoughtful, we should be wise, we should be prayerful. None of that stuff will remove this dynamic in your life and mine. Things are going to fall apart and break. And there's a futility related to that. That should be a reminder too. You know when things break on you, when the plans go awry, instead of getting anxious, we could say something like, Lord, you knew this was going to come. You knew my plans weren't going to work out. What is your plan in this? The futilities you and I experience can be the mechanism by which we turn our hearts back to God again. And this is really humbling, isn't it? If I've got to make something work, I'm on the line. My pride's on the line. My character, as far as I'm concerned, is on the line. But if I recognize, no, the world I'm in, it's filled with futility. God knows that. My sovereign, loving Father knows that. So that when things do crack and fall apart, I can say, Lord, this didn't catch you by surprise. What do you want me to do here? Those futilities can still turn me back, turn my gaze back to God and last and perhaps for me most profound guys did you know there's a futility in our successes there's futility in our successes and and if nothing else uh, helped a person turn their eyes to heaven and recognize that there's a God and that Jesus is that God. This thing, this futility and success should be one of those key things that would enable a person to see that. Futility and success. Ecclesiastes 2.11 says it this way. This is Solomon. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now this is the wisest man on the earth with the wealth of the world. 
This is the guy who takes seven years to build the temple on Mount Zion, this gleaming gem in the center of worship for God. This is the guy who takes 14 years to build his own palace. This is the guy who has gardens everywhere and singers and he collects the library stuff. He does everything he can do. This is the guy that got everything he wanted. This is the example for you and me. Solomon lived it. You don't have to win the lottery. Solomon lived it. He had the lottery. He got everything his eye desired. He got everything his ear desired. And he said, you know what? It's empty. It's futile. It's frustrating. And that's because there is nothing on this earth that can fill your heart and mind the way God means to. And this is where C.S. Lewis came in and he said this. This isn't a quote, but this was the gist of it. He said, if you get everything you want and still realize there's this futility, there's this emptiness, then it must mean you're made for more than you can have on this earth. That's where this comes out. So if I get everything I want on this earth, I'm still going to feel like there's a sense of emptiness and futility in the greatest successes you and I can experience on this earth. There's going to be this area of hollow emptiness. And it's because the stuff can't fill your heart up. And that's why we say again, futility can drive us and should drive us back to recognize God is the one. God is the deal. And as we talked about love, sex, and marriage last week being the ultimate fulfillment, that's true about this futility drives us to recognize it's only in face-to-face fellowship with Christ Himself that your heart and mind will ultimately be filled up. It will not happen anyplace else. It will happen by no other person, no other mechanism. It can't. Because you and I were made for more than this earth contains. Well, that's helpful, right? So if I get married and somebody says, how's life going? And well, it's, it's going pretty well, but it's not quite what I thought it'd be, right? Or I get the new job and I'm thrilled, right? Answer to years of prayer. We get, gosh, we get a new building. How's that working? You know, it's turned into a bit of work. Uh, it's not quite the dream, right? This is life. This is normal, right? And so it reminds us that even when we get everything we thought our heart desired, it won't fill us up because it can't. And that futility reminds us our hearts belong to God. Ultimately, He's the only one that can fill us up. The futilities we experience in life, frustration, plans gone awry, desires unfulfilled, or here, fulfilled desires that leave us wanting more, they all remind us that earth is not our home, that heaven is. And Christ and God Himself are the only entities, the only place that you and I will be filled up, joyful, no downside, no emptiness, no futility. The only place that happens is in heaven. Quickly, let me end on joy. The other side of futility is joy. God does give us joy here, and I hope, I hope that's a normal part of your experience. You know, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is joy. If you're a Christian, if you know your sins are forgiven, and by faith you're united with God, you have the Holy Spirit in you, and one of the things He does in us is He gives us Joy, that's a part of who He is and what He is. And our experience as Christians in the midst of the work and the rest and the futility should be a regular and a profound sense of joy. In Psalm 4, verse 7, David contrasting his life to that of his enemies and he says to Yahweh, to God, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain 
and new wine abound. David's enemies that didn't believe in Yahweh, they didn't have a vital relationship with the living God. David says they're at their high point in life. The crops are in. The wine is flowing. Let's celebrate. The party is here. And David says, I've got more joy because of you than they've got from everything they could have on this earth because God gives me joy. Psalm 16, 11. This is one that even as a very young Christian was really meaningful to me. I was a party animal in my unsaved days. I was, of course, absolutely empty. And uh, the party life was a way to escape that sense of futility because I knew I, I was successful. I was popular. I had lots of stuff going for me and I was absolutely dying inside. People had no idea, no, no idea whatsoever. When I got saved, Psalm 16, it's like, this is where it is. So David says there, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You know the place to find joy and pleasures. All the best pleasures, they're in God's presence. Because He made us, He made us for Himself. He made us for pleasure. We've said this before. When we abuse things, we're not getting more pleasure and joy out of them. We're getting less. Food, alcohol, sex, uh, work, leisure, whatever you can think of. When we abuse a thing, we don't get more from it. We get less from it. Because God's the one that designed us and designed us for joy. He's the one that knows how to give it to us, right? David says it's at his right hand. There's pleasures and joys forever. They never end. That's our future as those who belong to Christ. Isn't that great? So you and I today, in the midst of futilities, and you're going to experience frustration and futilities, and we're going to work hard, and we're going to rest hard, we're going to have leisure that's intentional, right? But all of this ultimately gets us to this place where we're with Christ forever because that's where the joys never end. That's where the peace never ends. Let me wind down with takeaways from this morning. We need to accept that we live in a death-filled, Christ-rejecting world. And frustration is simply a part of life here, even for the Christian, maybe especially for the Christian. It's naive and it's deluded and self-centered that believes our hearts can be truly filled here by anything. By anything. Within this place, God still rules and still graciously sends meaningful labors and seasons and days of joy. We should be thanking God in times of blessings. And we've had a lot of them. And we should be trusting and clinging to Him in times of want and suffering. Making much of Him, even in the downsides of our life. We should recognize that life is experienced in seasons and cycles. And each is to be embraced in its time. We were talking in a financial peace class recently that today's Millennial generations hopes to accrue in seven years what their parents took a lifetime to accrue. It's looking forward to a time and a season of life before it arrives. So God's wisdom for us is to embrace in each time of life, embrace the thing in that time that He means for us then. Don't get ahead of God. Just embrace in each season of life what He means for us then. And last, labors and rest, frustrations and joys all remind us that the best is yet to come, that we're made for something and someone more. Ultimately, we're fixing our eyes on Jesus and the promise of eternal life He offers to those who trust in Him. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, this is, by the way, on his gravestone. This is from his poem, Requiem. 
Uh, home is the hunter, home from the hill, and the sailor, home from the sea. It's not until we get to heaven that all sorrows turn to gladness and the curse is gone so that all labors end in joy. That's where, what we're headed to. Father, would you give us the wisdom that leads to life? Lord Jesus, would you help us to buy into your word uh, fully and profoundly so that it changes what we value and how we think? Lord, would you help us to see you behind the labor and the rest, behind the frustrations and the joys, and that ultimately our hearts can only be fully met, filled up, overflow in your presence and lord i just thank you that it's in your presence there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore lord we offer ourselves willingly to you this morning and thank you for the great god and father savior that you are amen